Now, there are lots of writers who talk about how foundational story has been across history. Um, just take uh, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And in it, he maps how um, without story, humans wouldn't have been able to live in civilizations larger than about 20,000. That myth and story have been fundamental to our evolution as a species. Um, and that if we want to shift stories, we need to start thinking of them as technologies. We need to recognize them for the complex, potent things that they are. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system, which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Greetings. Uh, this is Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I hope this finds you well wherever you are on Spaceship Earth. So I'm recording this uh, in the towards the end of August. Uh, currently, I'm at home. My boy has COVID nineteen. He's been locked in his room for eight days. We're all self isolating again. Uh, we've had to cancel. Uh, our sort of first holiday really in, in a couple of years which was going to see my mum in Italy who we haven't seen for, for two years uh, there's the Afghanistan uh, meltdown currently going on we're in a climate and ecological emergency if you hadn't noticed there are wildfires extreme heat and floods kicking off pretty much uh, on every continent as far as I can see um, I've never experienced a year like this for weather in the UK as someone who spends quite a lot of time dabbling uh, outdoors with veg growing. The seasons this year, they don't seem to exist anymore. Um, I find that very, that's very destabilizing, that experiencing uh, the weather in these ways. Um, and of course, countries who've emitted the least carbon and used the least resources historically are experiencing the worst impacts now of all of this. Uh, and scientists, you know, the leading scientists across the world uh, are freaking out um, that many of our Earth systems are already uh, beginning to break down. I'm also acutely aware that the economic systems and dominant worldviews of the West and the global North, where I was born and where I live, these kind of principles of extraction, uh, consumption, infinite growth, competition, productivity, hierarchy and control, uh, 
consumerism as a core idea uh, and the belief that we're separate from nature are bringing down life on this earth for everyone and everything um you know the latest ipcc report if you didn't uh, catch it it's it's bleak as hell uh, it's um, spelling out that it is very very clearly it's the way modern human systems are designed are causing and driving the breakdown of climate and extreme events will continue to become greater and more frequent it says it's as much a threat to human cultures as it is to natural ecosystems so this is the you know this is the call out to to the to the world to world leaders and it actually says in the report that transformation is required at every level of society. You know, listen to that. Transformation required at every level of society. Just that alone. I mean, just to, I don't know what that means for you. But when I think of transformation, if I think about every level of society going through transformation, that's actually for me very exciting. I think because I think it's pretty obvious it needs it but this is what we're talking about although you wouldn't maybe know like because this report comes out and it's everywhere for a week and then we're back to as far as i can see in the media just just stuff to distract us nonsense basically half the time um anyway i'm currently looking at a headline that reads top chief execs paid more in a year than a uk worker gets in a lifetime so anyway, that's just a flavour of like the, the stuff that is like, you know, overwhelming, uh, right? In these moments, I find it overwhelming and I'm sure others do. Um, and I also recognise in amongst all of this um, that I actually have immense privilege compared to most people on this earth. And that really, when you think about it, just comes down to the fact of where I happen to be born on this earth. Anyway, <clears throat> slightly rant over. There's topic. There's a reason I'm talking about this with this podcast. Anyway, what if we looked at all of these crises, not as the end of the world, but as symptoms of human systems and worldviews that are dying, right? Because they're causing so much destruction and oppression and violence and they are no longer serving the purposes of the majority of life on this planet. They're definitely not serving the future. And for many people, they never, these systems never served most people, actually, probably on this earth. So what if these crises were signalling the end of corruption, the end of scarcity, the end of unfettered capitalism, the end of GDP and infinite growth as this insane idea that we bandy around as if it's normal um the end of consumerism as the core reason for being alive of polluting businesses of industrial agriculture of social and racial injustice of colonial ways of thinking designing and organizing the world you know of entitlement of treating the more than human world like a slave to human progress what if, what if that's the way we could start to look at these things? And what if I said the stories that we live by every day could actually help accelerate this transformation, that could help us let go of these systems, of these ideas, of these constructs, of these behaviours and ways of seeing the world, which we now know to be destroying life instead of regenerating life? 
As Mary Heglar says, we might be living in a horror movie right now, but we are the ones writing the script. And we're the ones who will decide how this movie will end. So, in this episode, I'm sharing a recording of a series of talks from an event uh, last June called Stories for Life. Now, Stories for Life, which you can find on the web at stories.life, was birthed late last year in 2020 from an experimental inquiry-led collaboration project that I've been guiding since late 2019 uh, with collaboration partners, the Green Economy Coalition and the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Now, in autumn 2019, together, we set out to explore the role of stories and narrative in our modern culture and how they influence and shape the human systems we design, the belief systems which inform how we show up day in, day out, and which are at the heart of our intersectional crises we're experiencing right now, in particular, our economic design. So we're proposing that the converging crises we face are symptoms of a shared root cause, economic designs based on an outdated and harmful narrative. That narrative says we are separate from nature and separate from each other. So if we're going to salvage what nature we have left and avoid further societal breakdown, we need to radically transform our economy, which means changing that narrative. You see, stories shape our world. They're not frivolous entertainment. Stories are the coding that shape what we believe, what we choose, who we are, how we think, feel and act every day. They shape our understanding of the world and the way we act in it. So stories shape the world itself. As my good friend Ella Saltmarsh, who's been at the leading edges of narrative design and culture change, uh, as she says, stories and narratives matter. The narratives we have are the soil from which the regulation, the technology, the policy, everything grows. So we need to be working at that level to affect change. Stories for Life weaves together the work and thinking of so many brilliant humans from around our world, past and present, ancient and modern, many of whom you'll find referenced in the work online. The work was seeded out quietly in late 2020 into various networks of creative culture and social change. It's been really well received, validated and is already being used for stimulus and framing in a variety of networks and initiatives for change that we're aware of. A couple of months back in June, I hosted a sellout gathering to expand on the work and hear from those working to create new stories through creative culture, arts, activism, new economic design, community action and more. The event featured talks from myself, my Stories for Life co-writer Paddy Lauman, Stories for Life supporters Carlotta Sands from Donut Economics Action Lab, Ella Saltmarsh from The Long Time Project, Imi Kerr from Civic Square 
Andres Roberts from the Bioleadership Project, and Kumi Naidu, the former executive director of both Greenpeace International and Amnesty International. So this podcast is the audio recording of that event and those talks. If you'd like to watch the video version, you can find the YouTube version in the link in the show notes. There's a huge amount in these talks, and I encourage you to dive in. Um, please feel free to access the work at stories.life. Play with it, share it, use it, remix it, put it into your work and get in touch if you'd like to jam or collaborate on any of it. Because ultimately, every one of us has a role to play here. Brands, citizens, designers, writers, journalists, entrepreneurs, media owners, artists, activists, scientists, conservationists, teachers, content creators, filmmakers, parents, because we all tell stories every day. We decide every day what words come out of our mouths on our social feeds, in our communities and workplaces, through the platforms and channels we communicate through, through the things we create. We decide which stories we want to carry and live by and which ones we need to call out and drop because they no longer serve us, other living beings or future life on this earth. Will it work? Who knows? But I'm back to the Mary Hegler quote. We are the ones writing the script and we are the ones who will decide how this movie will end. Personally, I'd rather go down trying to write a better story. Okay, that was a long intro from me. So let's cut to it. Here's the talks from the Stories for Life gathering in June. Enjoy. So I'm Dan. Thanks so much for coming in uh, today and joining us. Um, uh if you haven't already stuck your location in and a little thought of why you're here, please do. Today's going to be a, it's going to be a listening session. We're basically going to share um, work and talks and it's very much, um, it's very much a listening session. It's not going to be a big open discussion, but uh, hopefully we can have uh, more of those um, down the line. Um, so my name is Dan Burgess. I'm a co-writer of Stories for Life. I've been guiding this experimental inquiry with our fellow collaborators, Green Economy Coalition and the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, exploring the role our stories and narratives play in shaping our economic design. So I'm going to talk for about 12 minutes to give you some context to this work and then hand over to Paddy and then to our other guests. Um, so in autumn 2019, we began asking these questions what is it that's stopping the emergence of a new form of economy that puts human dignity and ecological well-being front and centre? And how might creative cultures in particular also seeking these shifts help bring forth that transformation? So we began asking questions, speaking to all kinds of folks, reading, listening to lots of thinking and ideas from around the world, ancient and modern, and bringing groups of creative beings together, curious folks on and offline to kind of prototype things to kind of help us make sense of all of this. And then COVID-19 hit us all and we spent months hunkering down trying to figure out what we'd learned and how it might be useful. Um, and at the same time, witnessing how the pandemic was kind of showing really clearly how broken this current economic design is, how unfit for purpose it is, as it revealed not only a sort of total lack of resilience in that it can only function when it's running in like fifth gear, sort of extracting, processing and consuming 
vast amounts of materials and energy running on nature, to be frank, um, but also how it it's powered by millions of people's time and energy, many of whom are working in awful conditions with little to no meaningful support and how vulnerable most people are. This modern economy exploits the natural world and the most marginalized to the point of collapse. And then George Floyd was murdered and many more of us, I guess, started to understand for the first time that these economic systems are also built on terrible social and racial injustices and oppression that have been going on for hundreds of years. Um, but in our dominant cultural stories and narratives have somehow missed that or, or hidden them almost. So in many ways, COVID accelerated this work by about a decade in, in 18 months as it lifted the lid on this system that so many of us hadn't really seen before. So our world is experiencing multiple crises and they are, um, they are all interlinked. And we believe the economic design is the root cause. So we kind of weaved our learnings together with the work of many, many incredible thinkers and creators. And you'll find all of them within the Stories for Life offering as it is right now, which is online. It's eight chapters. And we see this work really as an offering for these times um, for folks who are working with stories in our cultures, which is really all of us. Um, and it invites um, those, I guess, who are feeling the call to step into service right now um, to play with it. And so Stories for Life doesn't, doesn't prescribe a single story or a narrative. It's not like a silver bullet or a one size fits all top down sort of eco solution from a bunch of white guys. Um, we know that that is not going to work anymore and it never did work for most people and most life on, on, this, on this earth. We definitely believe that the future economies must be co-created. They must be diverse, abundant with different ideas, that the monoculture of Western capitalism is no longer fit for purpose. We need to accelerate decentralized ways of organizing and designing these human systems to honor place-based knowledge and communities and diverse indigenous cultures, economies that can span and weave both ancient and modern wisdom, technologies, designs, and different ways of being and knowing the world. And this is already starting to happen. So everything already exists, the solutions, policies, practices, tools, ways of organizing, designing and building resilience and bringing life back are all there. They're sort of tried and tested. But Stories for Life does propose and invite a collective approach. You see, we've learned that the cultural narratives and the stories that weave those narratives are the things that shape and inform the design of human systems, like economies, industries and politics. That's the way it works. And you'll hear much more about that from other speakers today. So we're asking what might happen if our collective creativity and imaginations focused intentionally on evolving two specific deeply ingrained stories that inform our current economic design. And there are two stories which weave the narrative of separation and are now driving both the destruction of the natural world and the vast inequalities that most of humanity is experiencing. 
People, by the way, who also never benefited from the current economic system and are experiencing the worst impacts of climate and ecological breakdown today. These story evolutions we're going to hear much more from today, from Paddy and our other guest speakers. But let's just name them now. The first story is how we view our relationship with nature, which currently says we are separate from nature. Nature's kind of over there. It's the environment. It looks quite pretty, but it's there. It's a slave to human progress. We use it to progress humanity. And if you think about that story, for example, just today, let us notice today is World Ocean Day. So right now, wherever you are, every single one of us on this Zoom is breathing oxygen in every second breath that's been generated in the ocean. We're all in intimate relationship with the ocean every second. And yet we are destroying the ability of the ocean to function in this way, to gift us life through our extractive, destructive, exploitative relationships, fueled by stories of the ocean as a vast, distant economic resource. And that continues to sustain this ongoing destruction. The second story evolution is how we measure success, which is currently really measured by productivity and accumulation. That's the main metric. That's how we judge our economic success, our business success, and it really our individual success in our, in our modern cultures. Both those stories are intimately linked because as we continue to measure our success by productivity and material accumulation, we continue to destroy the very natural ecosystems that support all life, us included. So as well as grinding down the human spirit in this relentless soul-destroying pursuit, and let's not forget also the connection, relationships, and interdependence that's deeply entangled between humans and our natural systems. And if we think about it, wild animals, insects, plants, birds, soils, water, air, stable climate, the very things that create and sustain life are dying because of stories we tell ourselves about an economy. And guess what? It's all interconnected. As we destroy the natural world, we open up the spread of zoonotic disease like COVID-19. As we pursue more and more growth, more and more development, as ecosystems collapse, the climate changes. We are what we do. We are the weather. We are nature. And as we destroy nature, we destroy ourselves because all life is interconnected. So, what if we could evolve those stories, those ways of seeing the world, which have dominated the last few hundred years, at least in Western cultures? What if we could evolve the stories of our relationship with the natural world and how we measure success? And what if creative cultures could help accelerate those critically urgent evolutions? This is our focus of Stories for Life and our invitation to anyone to come and play with it. We are on the brink of multiple collapses of Earth systems, complex systems that have taken hundreds of thousands of years, if not more, to develop, are crashing in a human lifetime. These systems regulate the conditions that sustain all life, regardless of how much money you have and how big your house is. The inequalities in our societies are now so extreme and visible, I think most of us can trust our intuition and embodied intelligence that we're clearly in troubled times. We cannot go back to what was before COVID. We won't make it because everything is unraveling. But what if we can let go of our, of our comfortable selves and jump into this uncertainty? 
And if the pandemic has done anything useful, it's helped us all acquaint with what uncertainty really feels like and what and who really matters. So in some ways, we've already started to let go of that illusion of certainty. We're already on the path. So imagine if we saw this moment as the most exciting time for creativity and culture, arts, commerce, design, innovation and activism, because when we're on the edges of what we know and understand to be true, we're often at our most creative. I imagine our future ancestors and all beings are actually calling us into service right now. If we could just cultivate the courage and imagination to intentionally experiment every day with what could be. I'm going to pass over to Paddy in a second to unpack the Stories for Life work in much more detail, and then we'll hear from our guests. But I want to finish with this quote from uh, Rudolf Barrow. He said, when an old culture is dying, the new culture is created by those people who are not afraid to be insecure. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel anxiety and insecurity most days. But when I look at what the science is screaming at us to do, when I trust my intuition that tells me that many people know in their hearts that these systems are no longer fit for purpose, when I look around at the incredible possibilities that are being worked on by people all over the world, when you see how quickly nature can respond when it's given space, and when I look at the young and see both their rage and bewilderment at the folks in charge, and their incredible desire and abilities to reimagine a world so more beautiful and that works for all life, when I imagine what could be, I'm okay with the insecurity. So thank you for coming. We're going to hear a lot today and, um, and looking forward to, to, to bringing our speakers on. But I want to start with Paddy Lauman, who's been my co-traveller and writer uh, on Stories for Life. Paddy is an independent strategy consultant and speaker. He's focused on tackling the climate and ecological emergency with a particular interest in the role of business and culture, which can play in transforming our prospects. He specializes in brand communications and narrative change. He's worked with a range of groups, including the UNFCCC climate champions. And he also lectures on brand and storytelling, advises various climate action activism efforts. And once upon a time, he trained as an actor. He's also an absolutely brilliant human. So I'm going to hand over to Paddy now. Well, thank you, Dan, for that very kind and generous introduction. And thank you to everyone for being here. Um, uh, it's a real honour uh, to be with you all. So I'm going to talk briefly through what we see emerging here and the vital role that we as storytellers, artists, creators, marketers, business people, and just plain old citizens can play in designing an economy in service to life. I'll go into a bit of detail about how these crises that we face are symptoms caused by our economy a deadly economy that's maintained by an outdated narrative woven by harmful horror stories, but that it's just a design so it can be redesigned, upgraded by helping a new narrative to replace the old woven by healthy love stories, a narrative that is already emerging. And if we drop two particular horror stories and carry two love stories instead, we can all help with this emergence so that together we can redesign our economy as an economy in service to life and escape these converging crises. As Dan said, the economy is the root cause. I'm not an economist. I used to think econo economics was boring, uh, all about numbers, not really for me. 
which is kind of part of the problem here. Most of us don't really know what the economy is or what it's for. We assume it's a fixed machine based on laws or a pot full of money, when really it's neither. The original meaning of the word is revealing. Eco means household, nemain means manage. So economics literally means household management. It's where we get eco from, as in eco-friendly. Eco-friendly means household-friendly, which implies that everything else isn't and reveals just how much we've lost track of the fundamental function of our economy. Because as the crises suggest, we're not managing our household properly. It's on fire, polluted, flooding, full of rubbish. The parents are fighting and we are running out of food and water. Each year, we mark the day when we globally run out of resources that we can replenish sustainably, i.e. keep using forever and start going into debt. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called Earth Overshoot Day. This year, that date will be July 29th. Imagine if your household runs out of water midsummer. Imagine if July 29th will be the last time you can charge your phone before January, the last time you can eat or feed your family until the new year. That is effectively what will happen. One way of thinking about the economy is as a vehicle that takes us where we want to go. Presumably, we want that vehicle to take us somewhere nice. Well, currently, it's driving us off a cliff. We need one and a half Earths to keep living like we are today. Five if we all want to live like Americans. But obviously, there's only one Earth. Mars is a wasteland, and getting to the nearest habitable planet would take 6,300 years. As they say, there is no planet B. As economist Kate Raworth puts it, humanity's 21st century challenge is to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. Currently, our economics, our economic design is not doing that. Incentivized to relentlessly accumulate stuff, convincing ourselves it will make us happy or higher status, we are extracting and using more resources than we can replenish, and doing so in a way that only really benefits a tiny fraction of life. This is a terminal condition. If you eat more cookies than you put back, the jar will empty. We are stealing food from our children and all future life, literally taking candy from babies. Why is this happening? Well, in a large part, because of the stories we tell ourselves every day. We have been living according to a powerful belief that has sat at the heart of our economics, that we are separate from nature and each other, that nature is external to our economy, collateral damage, rather than the foundational source of all value. So we let our economy pollute, erode the soils, acidify the waters, cut down trees, raise the temperatures and exterminate wildlife, meaning that 8 million people die every year from pollution alone, double all COVID deaths every single year. And our biodiversity is collapsing. The biodiversity, the wildlife that provides us with stability, our life support system, the life we need to live. This separation belief also encourages us to see ourselves as competitive individuals, separate from each other, battling it out in a zero-sum world against all other life. So we separate other people from their land, their cultures, their families. And the very qualities that have been crucial for our evolution, kindness, compassion, cooperation, empathy, diversity, creativity, care, are seen as soft, weak inhibitors to success. For so many of us, this feels wrong, but we feel powerless to stop it. We keep destroying nature, life, including our own, thinking there is no alternative, thinking that our economics is based on fixed laws like physics, when it isn't. It's just a design, something a few men came up with based on what they thought mattered at the time. The beauty of designs is that they can be redesigned, upgraded, 
and new economic designs are already out there waiting to be picked up, like the donut that Carlotta will talk about later. Designs for an economy in service to life, rather than an economy that destroys life, including our own. We need to see and choose these designs, but we're not seeing them at the moment, or at least not enough of us are. As Annette Schenker-Rosario puts it, I'll see it when I believe it. If we keep believing the old nonsense that maintains this deadly economic design, we will never see the new designs, which is why we need new stories now. Stories aren't frivolous entertainment. They are the coding that shapes what we believe, that shapes what we choose, who we are, the way we think, feel, and act every day. Stories of all kinds in all forms, from our myths, legends, parables, and fairy tales, to our textbooks, blockbusters, taglines, and headlines. Stories shape our understanding of the world and the way we act in it, and therefore the world itself. And we're saying both story and narrative in here. In this work, they aren't interchangeable. We follow the advice of many others to see them as crucially different things. A story is a unit of narrative, like a cent to a dollar, or a tile to a mosaic, or a thread to a tapestry. Together, several stories weave a broader narrative, a broader narrative that forms the fabric of our reality, the reality about which new stories are then told, and so the cycle spins. As our friend and guest Ella Saltmarsh puts it, narratives are the soil from which everything grows, so we need to be working at that level to affect change. We need to intervene at the level of stories and evolve them to stop weaving the narrative that encourages us to believe that we are separate from nature and each other. This narrative of separation, which is maintaining this economy that destroys life. The narrative of separation has deep roots in Western civilization, woven by the stories we've been telling ourselves for hundreds of years, from Judeo-Christian stories through to early science and our culture today. But it's a narrative that simply holds no basis in reality, a fact that has been made clear today by the latest science, from quantum physics and systems biology through to neuroscience and sociology, all of which are revealing that what we have been dismissing as woo-woo, hippie, or backward understanding is in fact scientific fact, that we are deeply interconnected, entangled, that we don't exist, we coexist in a complex web of life. But our culture hasn't caught up to this science yet. This moment right now is a bit like the Copernican revolution, this was when Copernicus suggested that the sun was at the centre of the solar system, not the earth. Not a new idea at the time, in fact, an ancient one that had been dismissed. But his book was banned, and his follower Galileo, who later proved he was right, was arrested. It took a hundred years for their ideas to be accepted by the wider culture. We don't have a hundred years this time. Catching up to the science isn't easy, because we've all been coerced into believing that we are separated individuals. Despite the fact that individual is merely a point of view, our point of view currently ends at ourselves, which we see as contained, walled off from everything else, from nature, which is out there. And yet the facts suggest otherwise. There are more non-human cells in our bodies than human ones. In our gut, on our skin, are billions of organisms. In fact, there are more organisms in one person's gut than there are stars in the galaxy. We are individuals like a leaf on a tree is an individual. Beyond that, we are intimately entangled in the web of life, a web that we depend on entirely for our survival, as is made painfully clear by the fact that plankton in the ocean, those tiny little creatures, provide 50 to 85% of our oxygen. And our economy has led us to reduce their population by 40% since 1950. It's like punching a big hole in our oxygen tank. World Ocean Day isn't just one day, it is every day. 
But our economic design is hell-bent on destroying that ocean, on destroying the web of life. So it is hell-bent on destroying us. We are not suggesting any of this. We are noticing it. Noticing the voices from all across the map whose quotes and work populate the stories.life website. Voices who point to an emergence or perhaps a re-emergence of a healthier narrative that can unravel and replace this false, harmful narrative of separation. The narrative of interconnection that says that we are interconnected with nature and each other. A narrative of entanglement, of interbeing, of relationship, which is emerging now partly because science, the Western channel for truth, as we've been saying, is revealing it, partly because many of those who've carried it all along are screaming it now in desperation, and partly because, especially in the wake of COVID, people have had a moment to reflect and realise that what matters to them is a kinder, healthier, fairer, greener, more joyful and more united world. A moment to realise that human and planetary health go hand in hand and to deeply feel that acquiring stuff as consumers does not really make us happy, but that acting together as an interconnected community to help and care for each other can. The opportunity we have now as storytellers is to hasten this emergence, to unravel the harmful narrative of separation, moving away from the economy designed to destroy life, weaving instead the healthy narrative of interconnection that can help us design an economy in service to life. To do this, we see two places to intervene at the level of stories. First, spot and drop what we call the horror stories that maintain the narrative of separation. And second, at the same time, spot, create and carry the love stories that can weave the narrative of interconnection. A two-loop process of hospicing the old and nourishing the new. As Dan mentioned, in this work, we're focused on two horror story to love story evolutions to do with how we relate to nature and how we measure success. Two creative challenges that we hope can inspire all of our work. The first harmful horror story is the story that nature is our slave. Once declared literally by Francis Bacon, the godfather of the scientific method, we probably wouldn't say this exactly like this today, but the story's lasting power is revealed in our treatment of the natural world. Only 4% of animals are now wild. We have enslaved the rest to do our bidding trapped, often suffering in cages as our food machines. The pandemic, which we are still struggling with, reveals the danger of this. COVID-19 is likely the result of habitats being destroyed and animals being kept together in tightly packed cages because we view them as commodities, failing to recognise that they are in fact our community. If we keep nature locked down, we spawn viruses that mean we get locked down as well. Lock nature down, we lock ourselves down. Damage nature and we damage ourselves because we are nature. We are part of it, not apart from it. Nature is you, me, your friends, your loved ones, their loved ones. Nature is our family. This is the true story, the accurate story, and this is the healthy love story that we all need to tell. But our stories today are so often about an excess of nature, or dangerous nature, threatening nature, nature that we need to capture, conquer, control, destroy, defeat. So it doesn't really hit us that we have destroyed 60% of animal populations since ABBA first sang Money, Money, Money. Defeating nature is literally self-defeating. Nature is our family, not our slave. Our community, not our commodities. Our relatives, not our resources. If we don't love nature, we can't love ourselves. If we don't protect it, we can't protect ourselves. Destroy nature and we destroy ourselves. The second harmful horror story, which goes hand in hand with the first, is the story that productivity alone leads to success. 
So productivity matters above all else. This story means we prioritize GDP, gross domestic product, an appealing metric because it's so simple, one big number to rule them all, but it's deadly because it is too simple. The person who came up with it warned that it should never be used to measure the success of a nation, let alone a whole planet, because its simplicity means that it is indiscriminate. It does not account for the true cost of our activity, the impact we have on our household. It does not punish bad behavior, behavior that destroys our ability to live. In fact, it often rewards it. Creating pollution using fossil fuels counts twice towards GDP, first by polluting and then by cleaning it up afterwards. The damage to nature and our health in the process simply doesn't matter. We do not pay that cost. A murder adds $1 million to GDP. Guns, bombs, addictive drugs, they all add to GDP. This design literally values death more than life. Trees, which play such a vital role in maintaining the web of life, are worth more dead than alive, according to GDP. This is not true growth, not true profit, because it ignores the true costs. It is insane, and the leading Nobel Prize-winning economists like Banerjee and Duflo know it. GDP is supposed to be a measure of well-being, but given our household is on fire, flooding, polluted, full of rubbish and running out of food and water, we seem to have lost sight of that. The original meaning of wealth, wele, is well-being. So if well-being is supposed to be the priority, why don't we actually make it the priority? How about we tell a healthy love story that well-being is success and orient ourselves around that? This isn't about getting rid of productivity altogether, but making sure that we're focused on what matters, that we're focused on the health of our family in the smallest and broadest sense, that we prioritize ongoing, thriving, flourishing life the life we need to live. For both these story evolutions, we've suggested a few examples of stories already out there in the world, a process that we hope you'll continue with us. There is so much to create, but also already so much to share. We've also suggested a range of principles and related stories, principles like long time instead of short term, inspired by what Ella will talk about shortly, belonging instead of isolation, and stories like nature is a gift instead of nature is our property. And enough is enough instead of push it to the max. All of which are intended to be creative jump-offs, along with our imagination section on the site, which would archive some of the brilliant work and thinking that we've learned from and continue to learn from as we do our work. We hope that you'll find your own way to spot and drop the harmful horror stories and spot, create and carry the healthy love stories in everything you do, in how you live, what you express, what you put into the world. As Dan said, Stories for Life is ultimately an invitation to notice what the many brilliant voices from across the map have noticed, to continue the process we've begun here of dropping the horror and carrying the love, to ask questions like, how can our work encourage us to love and care for nature as our family? And how can our work help us recognise the wealth in well-being? An invitation to begin evolving the stories we tell every day. Because as we've discussed here and in more detail on the site, the economy is the root cause of our crises. It is stupid, disconnected from our science, wisdom and common sense. A deadly design maintained by a harmful narrative of separation, but one that can be redesigned, guided by a healthy narrative of interconnection, which is emerging now to help us see the new designs already out there. An emergence that we will need all of our power to evolve the stories we tell every single day through our work and in our lives, into love stories about how nature is our family and well-being is success. If we can tell 
these stories for life, we can all play our part in designing an economy in service to life. Thank you. Thanks for that. And um, yeah, um, so much in there. And we're going to move on because we've lost a bit of time. So our, our first uh, uh, guest is Ella Saltmarsh. Now, Ella has been really influential in this work. You'll find her work sort of weaved in some of these particular chapters. Um, Ella's a co-founder of The Long Time Project. Her work sits at the intersection of culture, narrative and systems change. She's founded organisations and initiatives like the Reset Narratives Community, the Comms Lab, the Point People, It's Our Time and She Votes. Her writing for stage and screen is represented by the agency. She's fascinated by the intersection between fiction and futures. She recently wrote Recode, which is a short drama for The Guardian, and her writing on culture and social change has been published widely all over the world. So really excited that we've got Ella. I know we don't have a huge amount of her time as well because she's recording something uh, after this, but I'm going to hand you over now to Ella Saltmarsh. Great. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dan and Paddy, um, for the invite um, and for this work. Um, so uh, you've asked me to talk both about um, systems and storytelling and about some of the work that we are doing to uh, cultivate new stories at scale. So I am going to dive in to this work about story and time. Um, so my background is this weird mix of uh, climate and systems change nerd and uh writer of drama for stage and screen. And over the last five years, I've been bringing these fields together to really look at the role of culture and narrative in shifting systems. And when I started this, it was a pretty lonely field. Uh, and I've got to say, like people like Dan and Paddy have been growing this work um, and there is so much happening now in this space. Um, now, when I started doing this, um, I found that story was dismissed most of the time, that it was seen as something fluffy, something flaky. I remember a big systems change conference I was speaking at overseas, and I was on this all-female panel um, about the role of story. And we were followed by an all-male panel uh, called The Hardware of Systems Change. Uh, and I, um, I was like... Wait, but if they're talking about the hardware of systems change, we're talking about the operating system. Like the work of narrative sits below everything. It is how we get the laws we get. It's how we get the technology we have. It's how we get the policy we have. All of that is related to the narratives that we have. Um, and so a lot of the work initially was taking story out of the thing that we were read to, as children out of this space of being very childlike um, to a space of being foundational. Um, now, there are lots of writers who talk about how foundational story has been across history. Um, just take uh, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And in it, he maps how um, without story, humans wouldn't have been able to live in civilizations larger than about 20,000. That myth and story have been fundamental to our evolution as a species. Um, and 
that if we want to shift stories, we need to start thinking of them as technologies. We need to recognize them for the complex, potent things that they are. So if we dive into the world of systems change and start to get a bit more granular about how we can use stories to shift systems, um, a good place to start is the work of Danella Meadows. Now, I apologize. This is a really ugly slide. Um, it, uh, it, it doesn't represent Danella's work, which has a real beauty to it. She is one of the godmothers of systems change um, and a particularly famous article that she wrote was called 12 places to intervene in a system um, and the key thing to note about this very ugly diagram is um, that these 12 leverage points can be divided into three areas they can be divided into things relationships and purpose so if you want to change a system you can change the things in a system so that might be about buying organic food, uh, wearing sustainable cotton. Um, you can change the things in the system. Um, if you want to have more influence in that system, you can start to change the relationships in the system. So that might be changing the relationships between uh, the potato farmer and the supermarket, between the shopper and the grower, um, starting to change things at the relational level can have a more profound shift in the system. But if you really want to change a system, then you want to be intervening at the level of purpose. You want to be changing what the goal of a system is. You want to be asking questions like, um, what should the goal of a company be if it isn't maximizing stakeholder profits? Um, you want to be asking these fundamental questions about the goals of a system. And the way that you do that is through narrative, because the goals and the purpose of a system will be embedded in narrative. Capitalism the narrative of capitalism seeps through our lives in an infinite number of ways. So if we want to be shifting systems, we need to be working at this level of narrative. My final ugly diagram um, is one that just alludes to something that Paddy talked about, which is this relationship between story, narrative, worldview and values. Um, and the reason that I'm sharing this is because um, work on story doesn't have to be about story. Um, it can be about values um, because the values we hold will determine the kind of stories that we have. And uh, to make that more tangible, I'm going to talk uh, briefly about a project that we're doing, which aims to cultivate um, a specific set of values at scale that we hope will uh, foster stories that enable us to have a future on this planet. So um, this project starts with this person, uh, meet my nephew, Finley. He is now eight and obsessed by Minecraft. But in this picture, he is two and obsessed by doors. Um, pretty much any kind of door, bedroom doors, bathroom doors, boiler doors, front doors. Um, and um, one day I was looking after him um, and I was reading an article about climate change. Uh, and he was idly playing with a cupboard door. 
a big cupboard door. Um, and I just got to a bit in the article that was talking about the terrifying prognosis for the end of this century. And I heard a noise. Um, I looked up. Uh, my little cousin, my little nephew was using his uh, tiny heft to pull this massive wardrobe on top of him. I threw my article down. I jumped up. I pushed the cupboard up. I grabbed my nephew. He started screaming at the injustice of being taken away from the best game ever. And to his utter bemusement, I started to cry too. Um, because in that moment, I suddenly realized that it was his future I was reading about, that he would likely be alive in that world that I was reading about at the end of the century, and that I would not be around to scoop him up from danger. And that moment was transformative for me. Like I'd already been working on climate for a decade, but something changed inside me. And I began to wonder about this question. Um, what changes when we understand ourselves to be ancestors? Because that's what happened for me in that moment. Um, I started asking this question to more people. Um, and then I teamed up with a friend of mine, Beatrice Pembroke, and we decided to um, ask this question uh, a bit more intentionally. We set up something called the Long Time Project, uh, which sounded very grand. At the time, we were literally playing around this question, this question of what changes when we understand ourselves to be ancestors. Um, we gathered initially, we gathered people around that question. So our approach was how do we grow community around a question rather than how do we impose our answer? Um, and really we, what we were curious about was like, is there anything sticky here? Is, can we, if we change the way people feel about the long-term future, can we change the way they act in the present to protect it? Um, we gave people different routes to access the future. I'm not going to go into these now because um, there isn't time. Um, but essentially, just as Dan and Paddy are doing in Stories for Life, highlighting particular narratives, um, we were highlighting different entry points into getting more long term. We realized that the work that we were doing was about how do we get people to create an emotional connection to the world beyond our lifetimes? So really what we're talking about is care for the future. And as we started to swim in this space of long-termism, we began to realize who we were and who we weren't. So there were already a lot of people out there thinking about the long-term, um, but planning and forecasting for it. What we're interested in is how do we cultivate care for that future? And we discovered through this work that um, through doing it, um, lots of people began to become interested. So um, as a result of interactions and conversations, funders started to develop portfolios of work in this space. Um, the BBC developed a deep civilization series featuring a range of work from different thinkers. And we discovered that time was really sticky, that there was something here for people. So we decided to spend more time on it. We decided it was worth really experimenting with. Um, and that if we wanted to shift the values people have about the future, that we needed to work in a systemic way. And um, so this is really ugly, but I'm just sharing this because what it shows is uh, the breadth of areas that we are seeking to influence in this work. That, as I mentioned before, capitalism has seeped 
throughout our society and that if we want to shift the values of capitalism, we have to be working in diverse contexts. Um, briefly to round up, I'm going to talk about one specific area that we've been working in just to show like because it all can it can sound quite ephemeral and I want to show you like this is what it looks like at in in practice so we've been doing work with governments um helping them become uh, more long time um we have been doing those with local authorities across the UK and then with um national and regional governments internationally and uh again we discovered like we we started doing this in the middle of the pandemic we thought everyone would be rushed off their feet but actually there was real appetite for this work. Um, and bringing together groups of policymakers, we co-created the long time tools with them. So we, we brought them together, we immersed them emotionally in the future, and then we got them to design tools to embed long-termism in their organization. So essentially to live a new narrative as an organization. Um, this is the index. The tools are there. You can dive into them. Again, we didn't think this would be that interesting for people. We developed the tools for participants, but it has been really widely spread, um, really widely shared. And um, we've had, you know, people from national governments to, you know, Hospice UK um, using this work in their institutions. So, this work um, raises a few key points that really relates to the Stories for Life um, project. Um, at the heart of what we're doing is radical kinship. What we are trying to do is to get people to feel a sense of kinship and care for the billions of lives that have not yet come. For all of those humans and non-humans who have yet to be born. And others on this call are going to be talking about radical kinship in different contexts, radical kinship with the non-human world, radical kinship from those already living the climate catastrophe today. So for us to develop radical kinship, we do that through care through engendering care. And the way we engender care is by bringing love and attention together. So again, this is, you know, deeply the work of Stories for Life. Um, we help people focus on what they love and pay attention to time. And we, we do that to then cultivate these story seeds all over the place. Um, you know, everywhere from recruitment practices to developing new rituals. And I really encourage everyone doing the work of story on this call to be as maverick as you can with the places that you cultivate story seeds. You know, think of the plants that grow up through the pavement. I am constantly surprised about where these story seeds flourish. Um, so I'm going to finish now um, and I'm going to finish with a quote um, by Carl Sagan. Um, just to highlight that ultimately this conversation about narrative is a conversation about wisdom. Uh, the narratives that have been dominating our society over the last one to 200 years have made us stupider as a civilization. And so the work that we all need to do now is to cultivate the narratives that will help us be wiser. And I think Stories for Life helps us do that. So thank you for doing the work and for inviting me. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth. 
hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Amazing. Thank you, Ella. <clears throat> Do check out Ella's work and dive into the long time project. It's absolutely awesome. And uh, start seeding. Start seeding. It's all about seeding, planting seeds. Um, okay, so we're going to go next stop on our journey here is um, we're going to go back to economic design now. We talked a lot about the economy. And people are like, oh, God, you know, economy, how do you, like, how do you, how do you change that? Well, right now we're going to hear from uh, people that are leading the charge on this. If you've come across uh, the Donut Economics book by Kate Rayworth, um, uh, if you have, it was a big influence for us on this work. Um, we're now going to um, hear from Carlotta Sands, who is co-founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab um, and the strategic lead working in partnership with Kate Rayworth. So Carlotta's work focuses on enabling the concepts within the donut economics story to be turned into transformative practice. This is about people creating new economies while ensuring that they spread wide and with integrity. So Carlotta spent about a decade working in the financial sectors in the UK and Spain, and she studied economic transformation at Schumacher College in Devon, which is always a place of uh, good emerging things. So I'm excited to introduce Carlotta Sands. Great. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me here. It's been just lovely hearing uh, you, Dan, Patty, and of course, the work of Ella, super inspiring. Um, let me, uh, I'm trying to put my screen. Um, okay. So share, I'm having some technical issues today, so I'm just going to make sure that everything's working. Can you see my screen? Great. Okay. So yeah, so today I'm going to be talking uh, about, yeah, I'm going to tell the story of how we're actually turning the ideas um, of this um, donut economics um, into, into practice. And I want to start uh, reflecting a bit more again, and I think that Paddy has brought us into that space as well as to reflecting on, on how the 21st century how has begun and how we are indeed living in a in a moment of of crisis, right? So, um, from the financial meltdown in two thousand eight, to uh, we are living in an era of climate breakdown. But of course, the horrible um, crisis that the the COVID nineteen has has brought us again, and all of these crises are hitting the world hard and they're highlighting the great inequalities that persist of race and gender, of wealth and power between countries and others. And what all of these crises are showing us is that we are truly deeply interconnected with each other and with the rest of the living world and that they can be a profound threat for the well-being of humanity. But what I think is really important to see is how these crises are showing us that they arise from the very systems that people have created. And so with this um, acknowledging in mind, what, we, what I think it's, 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 it's quite obvious is that we need a new vision, a new vision for the 21st century. And funny as it may sound, um, we're offering it in the shape of a donut. So what's the donut? It's a concept developed by my colleague, the brilliant economist Kate Rayworth, and it offers a new compass to guide humanity through prosperity in the, 20th, in the 21st century. 
So the aim is to leave no one falling short of the essentials of life in the hole in the middle. So no one short of food, water, health, education, housing. Now, these were all cross-sourced uh, from the sustainable development goals that you may have already heard about. And this means that all of the governments in the world have agreed that every person has a claim in meeting these essential needs. So leave no one falling short, but at the same time, and this is a very big but, we cannot overshoot the ecological ceiling. So the ecological ceiling is made out of nine planetary boundaries, which are Earth's life-supporting systems that keep this unique, delicately balanced planet a sweet home for humanity and all species here with us. So the aim is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet and live inside this safe and just space that offers the donut. Now, if this is the new goal that we have, the truth is that we are very far from reaching it. All the red in this image is showing us the extent to which we're already, like we're still falling short on, on, on meeting everyone's needs and the extent to which we've already overshooted that ecological ceiling. So billions of people are still falling short on those essentials of life. So, so this um, red little wedge that is pointing out here represents the 11% of the world's population that still doesn't have enough food to eat today. And while we are still um, failing in, in, in meeting these needs, the truth is that we have already collectively overshooted four of the, limit, of the planetary limits. So climate change is hitting harder, sooner. There's been excessive uh, use of fertilizers in, in Earth, excessive land conversion, catastrophic biodiversity loss. And so the challenge that we have in the 21st century is to eliminate this red that we see in the picture and enter the donut from both sides, the social and the ecological one. And we are the first generation to see this and to see that actually we need new solutions if we want to tackle these problems, because last century's economic theories were simply not designed to do so. So the question that I bring here today is how can we bring humanity into the donut? And what we think is that we definitely need to transform the dynamics of our economies and create economies that are distributive by design and regenerative by design. So let me deep dive a bit into this too. And let's start by recognizing that we have inherited a degenerative system where industries take Earth's resources, we make them into stuff, we use them for a little bit, sometimes only once, and then we throw them away. Now, this system of take, make, use, lose is precisely what is pushing us out of planetary boundaries. And so we need to turn these arrows and to make them into a system that is regenerative and cyclical by design, where resources are used far more carefully, far more creatively, far more collectively. But this is also one part of the story, because we have also inherited economies in the 20th century that were designed in many ways through technology, through regulation, in ways that tended to concentrate opportunity and value in the hands of the few. So this is why in the last decade, for instance, we are seeing the number of billionaires doubling from 1,000 to 2,000 people. So opportunity and value keeps being concentrated in the very richest of, of hands. And so we need to change this as well. And we need to create economies that are distributive by design, that they share opportunity and value with all who co-create it. And I'm going to bring 
very briefly some examples of dynamics that we're seeing that are being put in place showing this. For instance, um, we have um, new legislations coming in, like the one uh, about the right to the right to the repair in the EU. So this this means that um, hopefully in the near future we're going to be having the right to have our equipments repaired from washing machines to mobile phones, and this begins to end some of the inbuilt obsolescence into products and enable us to move forward to a more circular economy. But also we're seeing examples in Amsterdam where they have this ambitious to be fully circular in 2050. And by 2030, only half of the materials that are being used in the city will be able to be new. So the rest, half of them needs to be coming from circular materials already. So this means it's that the, the construction sector, uh, the industry will have to transform. It's a very ambitious and clear message to industry. Like you need to transform if you want to be building in our city. And what about distributive by design? Well, we have um, also examples, for instance, of how we can use anchor institutions in a city. Preston is being one of the pioneers in this for a long time in using their budgets, their city budget, budgets to procure through city administration, um, hospitals, schools, museums to actually buy and, and build local and small scale business resilience, right? So they are really um, creating or start to create a distributive ownership of businesses within the city. And of course, living wages, right? Um, Seattle in the US was one of the first um, cities in introduce the living wage of $15 an hour. But we, what we want to see is not only um, living wages in high-income countries or in high-income cities, what we need to see is living wages throughout our supply chain, uh, chain. So, of course, multinationals, again, have a big role as well to play here. Now... These ideas were all described in 2017, first by Kate Redworth in her brilliant book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economy. And so here she described this um, idea and vision of the donuts and the, the economic mindsets and dynamics that needed or that are needed to take us there. Now, since the book was launched, what, what started to happen is that it had amazing traction and resonance internationally. And suddenly change makers all over the world started to pick the concepts of the book and put them into practice. And so it was becoming or it became really clear, especially when I met Kate, she, she was seeing so clear that these ideas wanted to jump off the page and so um, we, we dreamed and we imagined, well, what would it take to take this idea really and, and put it into action, right? So inspired by this spontaneous uptake, we decided to co-found um, Donut Economics Action Lab to precisely work with this emergent community of practitioners. Now, our name is very intentional. We are focused on action, so on turning ideas into action and on learning with and from others through experiments what would it mean or what would it take to actually co-create this new economy? And so we truly believe that the 21st century economy will be practiced first and theorized later. And this is the way we are contributing to it. So we're working with change makers worldwide in communities, education, cities, business, governments, and we are co-creating open source tools that are turning these ideas into action. And we are also making or putting a lot of effort in putting in making the stories 
of how pioneers are using these ideas and adapting them so that they can inspire others. And so since then, what we've seen happening is, well, we created a framework to downscale the donuts uh, for cities, for places. And Amsterdam was the very first city in April in 2020, last year in the middle of the pandemic, to embrace publicly um, um, these ideas, this, this framework, and to use it uh, as, a, as, their, as their core framework to transform the city. And while the city leaders were actually embracing publicly the model, what happened also is that an amazing network of residents in the city created also the Amsterdam Donut Coalition to run at the same time their own grassroots programs, initiatives, and chart a new path for collective action. So what we did was also to publish the methodology we used, which explained how Amsterdam, in this case, had started doing it to allow other places to take it and run with it. And what we're seeing is how incredibly powerful the power of peer peer to peer inspiration is, because very soon we started seeing towns and cities all over the world um, starting to to take the concepts and to adapt it into their own concepts, into their own context. And. We're seeing this not only happening and in cities, we're seeing it uh, happening at different scales. Um, actually, we, I know we have um, Amy from City Square, so we're seeing them adapting the framework at a neighborhood level. We're seeing regions like Brussels uh, putting it into practice in their place, or even nations uh, using it, such as Curaçao or, or Costa Rica. And also, I think that one of the most interesting things that we've seen, which we definitely didn't um, expect it or didn't imagine uh, when we first launched was that these initiatives are not only being led by by, by um, local governments or, 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 city, or city leaders, let's say. We are seeing that communities and local groups are really picking it up and putting it into action in ways that we've never expected. So I just mentioned the Amsterdam Donut Coalition. They spontaneously formed and their creation also inspired many other groups um, worldwide that just started to organize themselves in place-based groups and they've started to put these ideas in, in different ways in different places. And we, we're seeing that it's working and, and, and there's, that there's a lot of energy and interest in actually self-organizing in this way. And this is what we're seeing. We are delighted to see how, bring, how groups are bringing um, to life so many adaptations of the donuts. We're thrilled to read the stories that they're sharing with us on how they're putting it into action in, in, their, in their places, from a Mahori reinterpretation um, of the donuts to how it's been used in Costa Rica as part of their regeneration journey of the country. So if, if, if this story is, is of interest to you, I also warmly invite you to, to visit us, to visit Donut Economics Action Lab. We really believe that spreading the ideas in this way from change makers to change makers is the most effective way that we found so far to bring about uh, this new this new paradigm, this new economic paradigm that we want to see um, in the next decades. So thank you very much for listening. Um, and I look forward also to, to read, uh, to listen uh, the rest of the stories. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much, Carlotta. Amazing. Donuts. It's actually made me want to eat a donut and I'm quite hungry. Um, but um, it's so cool to see what's going on on the ground and, uh, and the fact that, you know, it is, it is people doing this, designing this with this kind of real local flavours. So it's, um, yeah, amazing to see. Um, okay, next up on our stop. So I guess 
Um, one of the things over the last year, indeed, at least for some of us, I guess we've been hearing this intersectionality of the crises that we're experiencing. And um, I think for many of us, we're learning our way into that. Like, what does that mean? What's actually going on here? How do all these things are in relationship, all these crises and issues? Um, so I guess one of the things with Stories for Life, we're, we're exploring how do, we, how do we speak from a much more informed place? How do we work from a place, particularly in the global north and the sort of highly westernized societies? How do we actually really open up to what else is really going on? The stories that maybe we don't really understand um, that represent a huge part of this planet. So we're really excited to have Kumi Naidu uh, with us to come and talk now. Now, if you don't know Kumi's work, if you've never seen him talk, you're in for a treat. But um, Kumi was international executive director of Greenpeace International from like 2009 to 2015. He was secretary general of Amnesty International from 2018 to 2020. Um, as of June 2020, he's global ambassador for Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity. He served as the secretary general of Civicus, International Alliance for Citizen Participation from 98 to 2008. He's also served the Global Call to Action Against Poverty and the Global Call for Climate Action, which brings together environmental aid, religious and human rights groups, labor unions, scientists and others, and organized mass demonstrations around climate negotiations. So I think Kumi has this extraordinary um, uniqueness of how much he's, he's seen and witnessed across our systems around the world, both from a sort of planetary destruction and the sort of oppression of people. And so we're so excited to have him here. And uh, I'm going to hand you over now to Kumi Naidu. Thank you, Dan. Uh, dear friends and colleagues, today is a painful day for me and many of my close friends. I am reminded of four young activists from my home city, Durban, who were murdered for standing up to injustice. The names were June Rose Kotoza, Lindywe Mintembu, Makosi Nyoka, and Lenny Naidu. Lenny was one of my closest friends and comrades. I received the news of their deaths as a 23-year-old student in exile. In my grief, I thought about the last conversation I had with Lenny just over a year earlier, where he'd asked me this philosophical question. What is the biggest contribution we can make to the cause of justice? I replied, well, that's easy, giving your life. And he said, you mean going and participating in a demonstration, getting shot and killed and becoming a martyr? I said, I guess so. Our people at that time were being killed almost on a daily basis in South Africa, with us spending many weekends attending funerals of people killed by the regime. However, Lenny said, that's the wrong answer. It's not about giving your life, but giving the rest of your life. Lenny was way ahead of his peers in his thinking and wisdom. We hugged, shed a few tears, and we fled the country in different directions. He was, prob he was way ahead of time, and he, I jokingly say he was probably one of fewer than 5,000 5, voluntary vegetarians in Africa at that time. Don't hold me accountable for that number, though. He was one of the few people who understood the nexus between environmental and racial justice and understood the power of intersectionality better than most of us did. This distinction he was making between giving your life and giving the rest of your life was simply saying that the struggle for justice is not a sprint, but a marathon. And the biggest sacrifice anyone can make is to be true to those values until those justices, injustices have been overcome. Today is the 33rd 
anniversary of my comrade's murder by the apartheid regime. And I'm pleased to spend it in remembrance of people who are seeking to imagine a different future based on a true sense of global justice. One of the most important legs of the marathon that humanity has run throughout history has been to determine the social contract that exists between the people that have power to lead and those that are led. For the past six months, I've been working with the Green Economy Coalition, building an initiative to push for a new, just social contract. Some people say the social contract, which is essentially the terms of the relationship between our leaders and the people or governments and citizens is broken. From the way it is sometimes spoken about, you'd think it's just been broken recently. In reality, the social contract has been broken for a very long time. It's always been broken for indigenous people, for women and young people, for people in the global south because of the economic dominance that still remains in the hands of the so-called developed countries or the global north, as for many others as well. Part of the reason environmental activism and climate activism specifically has not been effective enough is that for far too long, the environmental movement refused to fully embrace racial justice, gender justice, economic justice, and intersectionality in general. In using the notion of intersectionality, the most powerful gift to activism by the feminist movement decades ago to build a new social contract, we have to balance equity with sustainability. Because when folks in the North, in the so-called rich nations, talk about protecting polar bears and natural beauty and so on, it sadly sounds hollow to people who are living on the edge of survival. It is even alienating for people who are on the receiving end of what we can call global economic apartheid, which still serves the folks in rich countries thousand times better than those in poor countries. In 2013, I found myself aboard a small inflatable motoring through the Greenlandic Arctic Sea on my way to occupy an oil rig prospecting for oil. Wearing what could have been mistaken for a spacesuit, I looked around in the icy waters and felt very nervous. My Greenpeace colleagues in the boat, noticing my fear, tried to comfort me by saying that if I fell into the water, the suit would keep me alive for two hours. Without it, I'd be dead in a matter of minutes from hypothermia. I looked at the wild waves and thought it would probably take them about two hours to find me in those conditions. I remember thinking, if I die right here and now, carrying this banner that says, stop Arctic destruction, most of my friends, comrades, and family in Africa wouldn't have an idea about what I was doing out there and what message I was carrying in this last action. In the days after my release, nursing a bad Arctic flu, I imagined my daughter saying a better slogan would have been, save Santa Claus now. She corrected me today to say that she did not say it, and I probably came up with it in the midst of my flu. Activism, especially that from the big logos, has for far too long alienated itself from ordinary people of the world, and ironically, the very people it is supposed to serve. One of the biggest issues with activism today is that we do not speak the same language as ordinary people anymore. We have forgotten how to communicate with people and have been too concerned with putting energy in the wrong places in our society. We have had our gaze wrong. We have been gazing too much to elites, governments, and corporations, and not sufficiently 
keeping that gaze on the most vulnerable. Activism must learn to humble itself, to listen and learn how people are understanding the world around them and how they are communicating their ideas. A profound wisdom that I would like to share comes from Martin Luther King. Dr. King, speaking in 1965, said, Friends, as I come to the end of my speech, I want to note that in the field of modern child psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted. Now, we all want to live a well-adjusted life and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental illnesses. But my friends, I say to you, there are certain things in our world that are so unjust and immoral that good, decent people should refuse to be well-adjusted to. He, said, he goes on to say, I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry, racial discrimination, the mindless expenditure on military weapons. And on the economy, he said, I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few when millions of God's children are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society. While he was talking about the U.S. in the mid-60s, it is a thousand times more relevant today, both in the United States and globally. In a longer version of the speech, he says, I now call upon decent men and women around the world to come together to set up a new global movement to be known as the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. Unfortunately, this movement was never formed, a movement that would have pushed back against the status quo that we have come to accept that has taken us on the suicidal path that humanity is on at the moment. So cognitive dissonance, the mass denial of the multiple crises that humanity finds itself facing must be dealt with. All the factors are there. We are calling not for the rearranging of deck chairs and the Titanic while humanity sinks, but for serious structural and systemic change. What we saw in 2008 and 2009 after the global financial crisis was an approach by those in power for system recovery, system maintenance, and system protection. But what was needed then, and what is needed even more urgently now, is system innovation, system redesign, and system transformation. And I would argue that part of the problem of why we're not winning is our narratives are wrong, and too many of us don't have the courage to actually go to the root causes of the problems. We are much happier to talk about the manifestations of structural reasons why there are problems, because we don't have don't have to deal with the fact that in reality, the biggest global disease we are facing is not COVID, but what we could call affluenza. Affluenza is a pathological illness where we've been led to believe that a good, meaningful, decent life comes from more and more and more material acquisitions. So things like the importance of arts and culture, our relationships with our neighbors, spending time with our families, all of these things are decimated by this disease. So where do we go from here? One of the errors that activism has made has been that we are focused too much on what people don't have and focus far too little on what people have. We are focused on how people are disempowered, excluded, marginalized, oppressed, and repressed, all of which is real and painful. However, we must also balance that by looking at what power people have, because unless we can understand that power and harness it, for justice, we do not have a chance to win. I leave you with a visual outlining a framework for some fresh thinking around this issue. I hope the visual has gone up. We must put people at the center of our 
planning, strategic actions, and so on, in terms of thinking about how we are going to turn things around. People have power as citizens and voters, as enhancers of transparency and accountability, as shapers of our own destiny through movements. Uh, people have power as volunteers taking action for the public good. This is called harnessing our autonomy. Then we can look at harnessing our creative participation. People have power as custodians of ancient wisdom, wisdoms that colonialism sought to destroy. People have power as shapers of values, ethics, and belief, and people have power as shapers of culture and art. We need to also look at how we can harness our collective wealth. People have power as holders of bank accounts, even if we don't have much individually. People have powers as holders of insurance policies and other similar financial products, and people have power as owners of capital and assets. It is true, poor people don't have these things in huge quantities. But when we harness what we have collectively, we have more power than we think. People also have power as consumers of everything from energy to information. So for us to win, we need to focus on what people have and all of these capabilities and what needs to be harnessed to the full potential if we are to avert catastrophic climate change and build a society that is sustainable and equitable. I would like to end my contribution with a poem that I wrote during lockdown. It's called, We Are All Desperate to Get Back to Normal, But Should We? This poem could easily be called An Appeal for a Just Social Contract. You choose which title suits you best. Normal. What an average word. So uninspired, it's actually absurd. In a time when we have been forced to change our ways, to pause and isolate and dream of better days, that we'd ever yearn for the world of yesteryear, a world so divided, so fragmented by fear, it's mind-boggling at best that we might, might just blow Mother Nature's tests, longing for the same madness that put us in this global sadness, of me first and screw you and buy four for the price of two. Surely, getting back to normal can't be our aim after all the sacrifices, death and pain, Yes, this pandemic has brought us to our knees, cutting jobs and highlighting inequality. Our leaders are exposed and the broken systems they have imposed are now obviously not making any sense. So why do we obsess and resist what needs to be? The end of these failed economic schemes and political machines that weaken and divide, leaving only the elite satisfied. No, we have to be better than this. And if not for ourselves, we must for our kin, our children, and their children, and the ones after them. Thankfully, our youth has far more motivation to take action and end the years of frustration by breaking down the walls we have created and the inequality that is so outdated. So now, what are you going to do? Let's hope it's something substantially new to keep building post-corona a human existence that is far from over. Learning from our lessons, respecting all persons, especially our healthcare and essential workers, were invisible to many of us before this pandemic. And never again, lest we forget what and who really matters, even when all hope scatters, because this tragedy surely must be our big opportunity to look beyond what has always been and build a world that we can all thrive in. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to participate this evening. Um, so 
Um, our last guest is Andres Roberts. Um, now, Andres is a guide to human development through reconnection with nature. His work brings together innovative approaches to leadership and change, wisdom from ancient cultures, and deep work with nature to support more whole and more generative forms of living and working for our times. He's the founding partner of the Bioleadership Project, an original co-founder of Way of Nature UK, and a guide to contemporary rites of passage to support deep transformation. And he's just launched uh, the first Global Bioleadership Fellowship, which is a community of people around the world, changing the story of human progress by working with nature. Andres, over to you. Thanks, Dan. Um, Hello, folks. I'm I'm aware. I I think everything was scheduled to run until now, so um, I can't see you anymore, Dan. What what I'd love to offer is, um, well, respectful of time, if, if people can stay on, I might make it more a five or a six minute moment to relate back to life itself. Um, I don't think I'm going to share too much more content. I think the words I've heard have blown me away (laughs) and the speakers have, have, have shared so many beautiful thoughts and I don't know if we need that many more words. So I'll, I'll, um, I'd just like to offer this as a moment if people would like to step out to step out and then and then what I'd love to do if people can stay is five or six minutes to just honor um the life that we all are part of um so so I, I it mean well somehow it feels helpful to speak to that um, I think people are staying Andres I think people are oh, staying that's very nice. yeah uh, 108 is a very special number for me so that's kind of nice to see um and then the other thing is can I do you mind if I just share screen I, I don't have the access uh to share screen. You ready? Yeah, I'm also. All right, go for it. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I am gonna try and do a sort of shorter version, but let's see how we get on. So my name is Andres Roberts. I, I, I do this. This is one of the things that I've come to do with my life, which is both wonderful and thrilling, and uh, I'm learning about it all of the time, and somehow more relevant, which is that I help people to step out of the busyness and the patterns of everyday life and to spend time alone in nature, sometimes in places like this, sometimes in a park or in their neighborhood, or just maybe looking at the sky. And um, it's rooted in something that people have done throughout time, which is make space for themselves, leave society and just notice what, the pattern of life beyond our thoughts might be like. And it's amazing to me because... Thank you so much, Kumi. Amazing. It's ever so simple. Um, Sometimes we'll do it for a few hours, sometimes for a day and a night, sometimes for a few days. And with very little um, addition to just being there, all of a sudden people start to recognise... Uh, what's important in their lives and they draw a sense of perspective about scale and how we're actually very small but at the same time part of something extraordinarily and miraculously majestic (laughs) which is which is life itself but of course one of the things that we, we we realize in those moments is also um we've come so far away humanity has come so far away 
from how healthy natural systems work. Um, and that, that little question is at the heart of, of a lot of the work that I've come on to do. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit worried about time, but let's see how we do it. So, so um, th this question is at the heart of a lot of what I've come to work with, which of course relates, I think, pretty closely to some of the work that is happening here and the stories that we've heard. H how do we change the story of human progress by working with nature? And it, and it is just a story. We've come to live through a story that has become very destructive to our society, our planet, and perhaps it's polarizing people in strange ways. <clears throat> so what if we could rewrite the story of human progress by working with uh, nature? Um, I'll speak a little to a few patterns that I've come to recognize. I think these are familiar to the work that we're speaking about here. Um, um, can we move towards a better pattern? Um, I've come to feel that we in the modern world think in straight lines, but nature doesn't work like that. Nature works in cycles and webs of connection. So there's something about shifting our mindset away from pyramids and hierarchies and linear flows and starting to reconnect with circularity and seasons and non-linear webs. I think that's a, that's a shift that I'm starting to see. Um, very briefly, humanity's guiding principle is not, not only growth, but what I would define as maximization, making it bigger, making it go faster, making it go more and more and more. And our measures of success are things like gross domestic product. But nature doesn't work like that. Nature works through a process called optimization, which is that, um, yes, things are incredibly competitive and fight for their own lives, but somehow, magically, they keep this, a healthy shape to the whole. Um, so there's something about shifting away from maximization to optimization. Um, and then I, I wanted to speak to this, which is that um, if we look deeply, perhaps, and this is at the heart of the work that we're seeing with Stories for Life, perhaps we live life with a sense of separation. We see ourselves as separate to each other. We've seen ourselves as separate to nature. Um, but in nature, the, the more you look, the more you realize everything is connected. Everything is constantly in a dynamic um, exchange with, with the other. And we only have to think about our bodies. The breath we take right now came from sea creatures and trees. The breath that we give back out to the earth goes back to trees. The food we eat is passed through our bodies. The water that we drink now was a cloud only yesterday. When we look closely, we come back to that sense that we are vessels that are connected and constantly flowing with everything else. And we've come so far away from living life as if we really believe that. And, and um, so, yeah, the, all of this to speak to the fact that this idea that we've come away from um, a story that works with life feels very true to me. Um, and then I wanted to share this. I jumbled my slides up because <laughs> I thought I'd make them briefer. Um, I, I've come to learn this. When we listen to nature in a particular way, and I, I'm trying not to sound esoteric here. It's a, it's a very simple truth when we, when we just do it. When we take time to slow down and notice 
and observe the patterns of life or to just be, a different kind of knowledge emerges. And I feel that if society had a different dashboard, or it's perhaps the dashboard that we're trying to create now, more than speed, more than progress, more than competition, we would have a different set of qualities that we would guide ourselves by. And those qualities might be things like resilience or connection or adaptability or systemic awareness or the capacity to see the whole or love. <clears throat> and we can't learn those things by strategizing them and putting them into concepts and textbooks and trying to teach them in a traditional way. We, we, we learn those qualities by feeling them and living them. And it speaks to me to the fact that we have to let go of some of our thinking. We, we have to let go of feeling like we have answers and perhaps still do that, but embrace a different quality of knowledge that comes from connecting with how life and nature's patterns flow. And um, yeah, so I wanted to share the, one, the thing I spoke to you about before is, th let's call this a technology or um, a model or a tool. It's really ancient. Many, many cultures have worked with this before. We know it as the seasons. Um, it's been used throughout time, really, to consider what is the pattern of life. And, and we work with it a lot, both in nature quests, which I guide, but also in thinking about how do we re, how do we reorganize human progress? And it speaks to this, that everything in life has a beginning that's like the sunrise or the east. Everything in life has um, a moment where it will expand and grow and feel abundant and full. Like if we're in the Northern Hemisphere, the the sun in the sky in the south. But everything in life has decline and death and the sense of autumn and sunset, which is marked by the West in this model. Uh, and everything in life has a north that is stillness and emptiness and space where nothing will happen or so we think, but it's the space from which spring emerges again. It's the space from which we draw traditionally learning and knowledge and uh, perhaps a little bit of wisdom. And if, if nothing else, I think if we as a society came back to these principles and came back to honoring the things that are emerging, the things that are growing, but also rekindle our capacity to, send, to grow, to work with decline and change and transformation and death, letting go of the fact that things are like that things are in perpetual summer we would see a big shift i think in how we might grow as a society um and the last thing i'll speak to with this is 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 this um the more i've done this work the the more i feel like this is the this is the thing that emerges when we connect more deeply and it's a sense of belonging um, what I mean by this is if we could just tune in back to that fact that we've emerged from nature like everything else, we have evolved over millennia to sense, to perceive, to connect with nature. 
um, to taste food, to smell things, to, to feel the sun. The more we go into that, the more we feel like we belong. And when we belong, when we have that sense of belonging, then we need so little materially. We need so little that's about consuming or, or adding stuff that is ultimately perhaps not good for us or not good for the planet. So um, the, the Taoists, who I often refer to or look to in, in my own work, had a principle which said, we are born fundamentally perfect. We're, we're born fundamentally perfect, and we've been given the, the gift of life. And if, if we could just cultivate that sense culturally, if we could draw out that sense that we belong, that we're good enough, that we're part of nature, and that we've been given this gift of life, then culturally, I think things would feel very different in the world. Um, and, and I think this is the, this is the last thing I'll share. Um, all of a sudden, saying all of these things feels like it's a really level human thing to say. Um, it's no longer in the child position to say we're connected with nature. It's now a really necessary, valid, exciting form of development that more and more people are, are um, part of. So, um, yeah, I just want to honour that, that standing in a circle like this, uh, even virtually, feels like my little two-year-olds just come in the room um, in a good moment. Standing in a circle like this, thinking how do we do things differently with life, all of a sudden feels like the most exciting thing that we could do as humanity. And that, that shifting the story to connect with nature is perhaps the best story we could tell right now. Um, and I'll stop there. Thank you so much. And thanks to the organizers for making this space. Thank you, Andres, um, for that perfect way to complete our trip. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry we've run a bit over time with, the, with our tech um, scenarios. We're going to still finish with this last closing down because... We're going to record um, this anyway for um, for a podcast. To um, so we've probably got about another ten minutes here. If if you want to stay, it would be amazing. But understand if you if you need to leave. But I'm just going to wrap up really of of what next. Um, so just thank you to all of our guests um, and everything that you're doing and everything you've brought to this session today. Um, super grateful. Um, maybe just a few words in the chat if anyone wants to. Just say, yeah, what you're leaving with, really, what's come up for you, <clears throat> anything that's rising for you at the moment, what maybe you're, maybe what has stuck with you um, through this session. It'd be lovely just to throw it in because we're going to collate all of this as we make a bit of sense of it all. <clears throat> um, just in terms of next steps for, for this work, I mean, um, the work is an offering. It's there to be played with, to be experimented with, to be created with. Um, if you feel motivated to explore these story evolutions in your own work, then please do. We'd love to, um, we, we'd love to see that. And um, uh, there's a lot in there on online and we're, we're, we're also um, aware it's not the easiest thing to digest in its current digital form. So we're exploring actually a, a print version. Um, Connect to the, there's an inspiration page on the site, which we had started just to post lots of things that we found on this journey, books, films, podcasts, 
actions. There's a lot up there. Um, and we've just built a little form onto it now so you can add to it. So if you've got books, films, podcasts, movements, things that are actually helping shift, make these shifts, just um, put them on the form and it will become a collective uh, resource. Um, we've heard about the horror stories today and um, they're out there. So um, we would just encourage everyone to spot them, call them out in the media, particularly they're everywhere. Um, and I think part of this is helping reveal them, just help others to see them because it's not possible to see them sometimes because they're so ingrained. But, you know, it's not all right to talk about the living world as a resource right now. It's not OK to focus on corporate productivity at the expense of human spirit. And I think we just need to call them out. Um, and then on the flip side, the love stories that we've talked about, you know, there are they are everywhere. Again, they are happening all over the place. And part of this is about just spotting, sharing, lifting them up, but also about creating and carrying them in, in our work, in our days. We've also created a little um, stories page on the site. Again, you can, you can share, you can upload stories, love stories, horror stories, and we're going to try and find a way to see if there's some energy in that. Um, there is an, a, a sign-up, a mail sign-up we've just put on the site because we don't really know what's coming next, but we'd love to update people with what's, what's happening. Um, so just pop your mail in there <clears throat> if you'd like to stay in um, with this with this experiment um, and reach out, like reach out with anything that's coming up for you, ideas, collaborations. Um, we're here. We have a couple of um, specifics that we're fo we're sort of as a, as a crew focused on in the next few months. Um, so the Wellbeing Economy Alliance has an exhibition at COP26 in Glasgow. There's going to be a Stories for Life presence there. And we're seeking creative submissions, which speak to these two story shifts. So all the details, again, are on that Get Involved page on the site. And as I mentioned, we're starting to design a Stories for Life printed publication, which will package this work up. And we're looking for contributions, stories, essays, poems, photos, graphics, which speak again to these story evolutions, which will feature in it and help this this work to travel further again all the details are are on the site <clears throat> if you're a funder um come and talk to us about how we can build a bit of an engine room around this if you're a media platform and you're interested in distributing these stories or creating um we're open we'd love to hear from you so on that i'm going to offer up just a last um a last thought, really, um, and I invite you, maybe, if you wanted to, to close your eyes, maybe. It's a sort of a meditation. Um, so Ella talked about the long-time future. She talked about looking ahead. Um, I'd like to invite you to look back. So if we stop and pause and try and imagine all <clears throat> the people before us on this earth for hundreds and thousands of years who worked towards a fairer world, a world that worked in harmony with nature, which put human dignity front and center so that systems worked for all humans and all life. All those activists, indigenous protectors, writers, designers, artists, thinkers, doers, dreamers, 
innovators, scientists, carers, teachers, all the incredible humans who dedicated their lives to creating a better future. And here we are in this moment on the shoulders of giants. And we can draw on all of that creativity and all of that insight, all the innovation and learnings, all the books, podcasts and films that we can just access today, just like that. Like we know what is happening to our world right now and we know what needs to be done. And now it's, it's our time to step into service, to build on all these efforts that came before us. So if you can imagine a world where the health and well-being of all humans and all life around us was how we measured success, where we worked in collaboration with the natural world, where human economic systems are in harmony with natural ecosystems. And the thing is, what's different about now is the solutions are here. The tools are here. People are doing it. It's not like we're sitting around going, oh, but what else? How would we, how would we do things differently beyond this economy? It's all there. It just needs oxygen and airtime and imagination and courage to build bridges between different perspectives and different ideas, to embrace our diversity and differences, to work more from our hearts, to be okay with not knowing, and to help each other see and feel for ourselves that there are better ways of organizing ourselves on this earth for everyone. And to make these ideas spread widely in our cultures. Some have been doing it for thousands of years. Others have been working away for decades, combining ancient wisdom with modern technologies and creativity. Many are just starting. We need to realize and remind ourselves that we all have enormous power every day to make change, to create the world we want. It just depends on the stories we decide to live by. What if we really notice the words we used every day, the expressions we make in our work, the intentions we have when we create, what we seed out into the world, what we invite, suggest and provoke and imagine. If we brought beauty, connection, care and emotion into these times of crisis, responsibility, compassion, kindness, humility and fun to help us engage with the incredible capacity of the natural world to create belonging and the healing and regenerative potential in collective human solidarity and courageous action. People are waking up everywhere to the destructiveness of these current systems that we've all been a part of. Whatever you do, don't go back to sleep. In times of great crises, hearts open through grief and love, and hearts are opening right now everywhere. If we can imagine wave after wave of love stories about our relationship with the earth and with each other. And let's face it, if we're going to go down, 
let's at least go down trying to write a better story. Thank you so much for all of your time, and I hope we'll meet again very soon. <laughs>